0: your Bible, please, to John chapter 13. John 13, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 this morning in preparation of our hearts for communion. Uh, Pastor Todd is away. He is uh, doing a a wedding, I think it was in Atlanta, Georgia, or whatever, so you can bear him in mind and be praying for him for traveling mercies. I I believe he's headed back today. I think he's supposed to be here tonight to be uh, with the uh, College and Career Uh, group, I think, so keep him in mind as he travels today. John 13, verses 1 through 17, if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 900. The word of the Lord says this, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter then said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who it was who was to betray him. And that is why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. Truly, I, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that though you are the king of glory, and you are the greatest one who ever walked the face of the earth, you are the greatest of all beings in heaven and on earth, you are God himself, yet you came to earth, took humanity up into yourself, put on the robe of a servant, got down and washed our feet. And we think about you today, Lord Jesus, as we stand in front of your table, remembering the sacrifice that brought us life. And so help us today. As we look at your word together, as we Direct our heart and attention to who you are and what you've done for us. We pray that you will speak to us through your word. We're very conscious of the fact that uh, human beings cannot convey supernatural things. Only you can do that. We have the privilege of being able to speak and be your voice, but we can't communicate. Only you can do it. So, Lord Jesus, if you, by your spirit and your word today, will honor our Father And if you will glorify your name, and if you will help and strengthen your people today, then we will be grateful people. So do these things for us, because we've asked it in your name. For your sake we pray. Amen. Well, the word flows so easily from our lips, doesn't it? That was a great movie. That steak tasted great. Those Super Bowl ads, this might have been the greatest year for Super Bowl ads of any year that we've seen. It seems these days that everything is either used to be great, or now is great, or is going to become great. Great is one of the most commonly used superlatives in our day. It seems that it gets applied to everything and everybody in our day. Athletes make great plays. And then they mug for the camera and pound their chest saying, I am the greatest. Did you ever see a preacher do that? I hope you never do. (laughs) Hope you never do. Supermarkets advertise great specials. There's even a movement to make America great again. Greatness seems to be everywhere and nowhere in our day. What is greatness? Who is great? It's not a new question. When we open our Bibles, we find that even the disciples were debating about who is great and what greatness was. Can you imagine it? In the very shadow of the cross, on the last night that they're to spend with their Savior before he goes to sacrifice himself, there's a quiet little buzz of conversation going on around the table. Do you know what they're talking about? They're not talking about Jesus. They're talking about themselves. And they're debating around the table about who is the greatest. Who's the greatest disciple? Who's the one that's the most important to the Lord? Can you imagine sitting in the shadow of the cross at the very table of the Lord and debating about which one of them was the greatest Jesus listened in silence, and then without saying a word, he quietly got up from the table, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and gave them a wordless lesson in what true greatness looked like, and it was a lesson that they would never forget. You see, the point that Jesus is trying to make is that true greatness is not greatness that is served. True greatness serves. True greatness serves those whom God loves. We, as believers who have experienced the greatness of God through Jesus Christ, should make it our goal to become truly great servants of Jesus and his people by serving with all of our heart. Now we're going to take a quick trip through this. We're going to have communion today. And some of you are already beginning to worry about when you're going to get to your donuts, I'm sure. Because you know that I've never been short in preaching in my life. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. Those of you who know Wednesday nights and Sunday nights know that being short in, <laughs> in sermons has never been my, my debility. never been my problem. But I promise we're going to get out of here today. I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you for a little bit about what greatness really is. What does it mean to be great? What is is great in the kingdom? Who is great? And I want us to do this through the lens of this passage that we have before us. In the first five verses, we're going to see the greatness of Jesus. The greatness of Jesus. Then, in verses 6 through 11, we're going to see the ignorance of Peter. By the way. If you can see ourselves in Scripture, we're going to find more of ourselves in those verses than any other. Can I get an amen? Amen. But then we're going to find in verses 12 through 17 the aspiration of the believer. What is it we ought to be aiming at? How should we be behaving? What is it that Christ would have us do? So first of all, in verses 1 through 5, let's look together at the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's all over these first opening verses, isn't it? It's before the feast. Before the Passover, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, had come to earth to fulfill the significance of the Passover. If we read our Old Testament with attention, we understand that what was being pictured in the Jewish ceremony of the Passover was the lamb, the spotless lamb that was sacrificed so that the angel of death would pass over God's people. The blood had to be put on the doorway. Jesus, the Lamb of God that had come to fulfill the significance and the symbolism of that, has kept the Passover faithfully as a good Jewish person for all of his life. He's come to this point, 33 years old, about 33 years old. Jesus has always kept the Passover, and now he's keeping the Passover one last time. But he's keeping the Passover fully realizing That the meaning of that supper, the meaning of that Passover meal was that the Lamb of God would come and that he is the Lamb of God. And so he comes to this table knowing that his hour has come. And he knows exactly what this last Passover means. He knows what's going to happen. He knows that the sacrifice is going to be made the very next day. And that he's going to depart out of the world, that he had come into the world for this very purpose. And he had not only come into the world, but it tells us something very significant here in this very first verse. It tells us that he had come into the world, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It's very significant, that last little phrase. It says he loved them to the end. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean that he loved them to the last moment. It means that he loved us, To the fullest extent. In other words, that he had come into the world with such love in his heart for those of us who would receive him as Savior. For the whole world, really. For all of the world, without exception. Jesus loved us to such an extent that he came into the world willing to do anything. Anything that was necessary to save you and I from our sins. Jesus came to be the Lamb of God. And here he is. He is the Great One. He knows what he's here to do. He's sitting at that table, understanding what it is that he's going to have to do. During the supper, we're told in verse 2, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, Rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And when he had poured water in a basin, he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Sitting at the table, Jesus is getting ready to wash the feet of the one who's going to betray him, and Jesus knows it. Jesus, it is not hidden from Jesus. What the devil has put into Judas's heart. We're told a little farther down that Jesus specifically refers to this. Jesus, understanding what his responsibility is, knowing that everything now depends on him, that all of human history and all of human destiny has been put into his hand, he understands that he's come. To be the Lamb of God. He knows what's going to happen. And he knows this as well. That God the Father has handed over to him and said it's in your hands. What you do in the next few hours is going to determine whether people are going to be saved. Or whether they're going to be damned forever. God the Father has placed everything into the hands of God the Son. He knows that it all depends on him. And sitting at the table is the one who's going to trigger the mechanism that sets the sacrifice in action. He knows what's in Judas's heart, and yet he takes off his outer garment, he ties a towel around his waist, he fills a bowl of water, he begins to wash their feet, and two of the feet that he washes are the feet of the one who is going to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. I wonder what went through Jesus' mind as he washed Judas's feet. Did you ever think about that? I wonder what Jesus was thinking about when he washed Jesus, Judas's feet. I don't know what he was thinking about. But maybe it was something like this. Yes, you too. Yes, the offer is here for you too. The offer is always here, you see. Right up until the last breath, the offer is there. Even for those of us who have sold him cheaply. Even for those of us who don't seem to realize his real value and decided we're just going to be followers for whatever we can get out of it. The offer is still there, even to the last breath, for those who have sold him. Perhaps that's what Jesus was thinking about. Perhaps that's what was in his heart. I don't know. Scripture is silent on that. I'm guessing about that. But I think it would be very like him to be thinking that way, don't you? After all, who among us is not Judas? Who among us at one time or another has not told him to mind his business? Who among us at one time or another has not treated him as if he didn't count? Who among us at one time or another has not subtly shrugged our shoulders and gone our own way? Why should any of us receive grace? And yet he came to give us grace. He came to save us. There is nobody that is too far from God to walk straight into the kingdom of God by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the greatness of Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that the greatness of Jesus? The greatness of Jesus is, though he is God, though he has everything at his command, has created the entire universe, has called humanity into existence, Doesn't owe us anything. The greatness of Jesus and the greatness of God is He would not rest until the very dust that He had called into creation had the opportunity to join His family by having their sins washed away by putting our faith in Him. Is that great? That's greatness. Look at your neighbor and say, That's greatness. That's greatness, when the undeserving get what they don't deserve and get better than they deserve. That's what greatness looks like. And and Jesus says to his disciples, here you sit in the very shadow of the cross, arguing about which one of you is great. So let me show you what greatness looks like. And he he gets up from, he doesn't say a word, he's just listening to this going on. Can you imagine the conversation? Peter looking over at John and saying, well, you know, really, I'm the great one. Because, you know, it's always Peter and James and John. So, John, you're, you're even third. You know? And John is like, well, wait a minute. I'm the one he loves. Because I've been the one who's been leaning back on his breast here at the, at the, at the Last Supper. So I'm the, I'm the great one. Can you imagine? In the very shadow of the cross, here they are arguing about greatness. Jesus just listens to it. He takes it all in. He takes it all in. And then he just gets up from the table. Takes off his outer garment. And I bet you that the conversation, I bet you that voices got quieter. Don't you imagine that voices got a little quieter when they said, "What's he up to now? What in the world is he doing now? Why is he taking off his outer garment? What's he doing? Why is he tying that that towel around his waist? Doesn't he know that that's what servants do? What what is he doing, pouring water into that basin? Oh my goodness!" He's on his knees. Oh, my goodness. He's beginning to wash the feet of his... Why is he washing our feet? Can you imagine the conversation just sort of dying away as they just watch what Jesus is up to? I mean, after all, what could you say? What could you say? Everybody in the room knew what he was doing. Everybody in the room knew that it was the job of a servant to wash the feet of the guests. Everybody in the room knew that when you were a guest in somebody's home, the servant would meet you at the door, dressed just like Jesus, equipped just like Jesus, and he would fall on his knees and he would wash your feet as an indication of graciousness and of love. And apparently, when they came into the upper room, Here come the twelve fishermen and Jesus, and nobody, nobody, nobody thought to get down and wash anybody else's feet. Jesus says, did you miss it? You missed it. Jesus said, let me show you what greatness looks like. Gracious gets down and washes the filthy feet of those who have forgotten to be gracious. And that's what greatness looks like. And this is what Jesus is telling us. Jesus is true greatness. He is a picture of greatness, and the picture is striking. The point of what he does through this wordless lesson is to say simply this, that he has laid his greatness down in service of those who need his love. Jesus has laid his greatness down in service of those who need his love. May I ask you a question? How much more a servant could he be? Do you know, it's symbolic of what we have before us here, isn't it? The laying his greatness down in service to us didn't just happen with a bowl of water and a towel at the Last Supper. It actually happened on the cross the next day. He took all of his greatness and he laid his greatness down in service to those who needed his love. That's what he's doing. He was gifted. He was unique. And yet none of that counted. He would invest all of it to save our souls William Borden was a young man who was born into a prominent Chicago family in the late 19th century. He was the third child of William and Mary DeGarmo Whiting Borden. Borden's father had made a fortune in Colorado in silver mining, but the family was unrelated to Borden of condensed milk fame. You may think that's where the money came from. Borden was fond of saying when people would ask him where he got so much money, he could honestly reply, that he had been often mistaken for the condensed milk people, but he wasn't wasn't the same guy. After Borden's mother became converted to evangelical Christianity in 1894, she took her son to the Chicago Avenue Church, later Moody Church, and he responded to the gospel under the preaching of a preacher by the name of R.A. Torrey. From that juncture, prayer and Bible study became hallmarks of young Borden's life. After he graduated from the Hill School in Potsdam, Pennsylvania at age 16, his parents gave him the gift of a chaperone trip around the world. <laughs> That's a pretty good graduation gift, isn't it? How many would you? Yeah. Can we get an amen? All right. We could. That would be pretty good. It, they gave him the gift of a chaperone trip around the world, during which he first beca- developed the desire to become a foreign missionary. See, he was in London, Once again, under Tory's preaching, who was holding meetings there, and it was there that Borden surrendered his life for full-time Christian service. This privileged young man went back to the United States and went to Harvard University. At Harvard, excuse me, at Yale University. At Yale, he was used by the Lord to incite revival fires at the school. Afterwards, he attended Princeton Seminary, and he graduated in 1912. Borden appeared to be set for a life of influence and comfort in the American church. What a shock when he opted to abandon his life and become a missionary to Muslims in China. Borden never reached the field. He died on his way there of cerebral meningitis in Cairo, Egypt. He's buried there, and on his tombstone, the words are inscribed, Apart from faith in Christ there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ there is no explanation for why any of us who are gifted at anything would lay that aside so that Jesus could be served and so that the the needs of others could be met. Apart from faith in Christ there is no reason for any of us to lay ourselves down. And yet Borden did that. He was a truly gifted young man who could have used his gifts to please himself, and instead he chose to use them for Christ and for those whom Christ loves. How much more a servant could he be? William Borden looked an awful lot like Jesus. The truly gifted man needs to realize that it doesn't have to be, that gifting doesn't make you great. Using your gifts for Christ and those that Christ loves is the true measure of greatness. Now look at verses 6 through 11. We're going to have to move right along here. So are you ready? Fasten your seatbelts. Yeah, deacons, if, you, uh, if you're a deacon, probably go to the back because this is going to happen sooner rather than later. Okay? Just want you to look at Peter's ignorance for a moment in verses 6 through 11. Now, listen, this is who we are, right? So Jesus is down on his knees. He's washing these guys' feet. He gets to Peter, and he starts to wash Jesus, uh, Peter's feet. And Peter says, what? Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says to him, no, let me analyze your problem. Your problem is you're ignorant. You don't know what I'm doing. Later you're going to understand. Just let it alone. Let me do this. And Peter gets all sanctified. Peter gets all sanctified. Lord, I know who you are. I know how great you are. I know how greatness works. Because the way greatness works on planet Earth is, the people who are great don't serve the people who are not. It's that we, the people who are not, serve the ones who are great. And Jesus says to him, "No, you got it all backwards. See, you got, you, you're exactly backwards because you're thinking like a human being. Peter, you're ignorant. He says, Peter, you don't get it. You don't get it. Unless I wash you, you don't have any part with me. And Peter, having fallen off the horse on the right-hand side, now, still being drunk with ignorance, falls off the horse on the left-hand side. And, and he says, well, if that's the case, then here's what you need to do. Go ahead and do my hands and feet, too. Don't just do my feet. Do my hands and my head, too. And Jesus said, Peter, you're missing the point. You're already clean. You're already clean. You put your faith in me. You believe in me. You trusted me. That's how you got clean. You don't, need to be, you don't need that to be taken care of for you again. You just need the dust knocked off your feet. You've been walking around in the world, and the world gets us dirty. Even though we've come to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though Jesus has saved our souls, we walk around in this filthy world and we bring that in with us to the presence of the Lord. And he says, no, I just need to wash your feet. It's different than it was with Judas. Judas is sitting at that table. Judas never believed in him. Jesus, Judas never put his faith in him. And that's why Jesus says, all of you are not clean. I'm washing your feet. All of you are not clean, but I'm washing your feet. You see, Peter, what, what the Peter's problem was, that his ignorance didn't keep him from being saved, It kept him from becoming a servant. Peter's ignorance didn't keep him from being saved. He had put his faith in Christ. He loved Jesus. He really did. His ignorance kept him from becoming a servant, like his master. Ever so often... In Germany or in England, construction projects are brought to a halt when an exploded, unexploded bomb from World War II is encountered underground. It's fascinating to me that even after all these years, care has to be taken to disarm the bomb. When a bomb is found, someone has to be called who is educated in the science of disarming World War II-era bombs. I'm pretty sure that they don't say, well, you know, old Alfred's pretty much used up. Let's just send him out and see what happens. (laughs) No, they get somebody who knows how to do it. When important work has to be done, properly prepared people have to be available to do that work. And unfortunately, many professing believers today are ignorant of the riches of the Christian faith. Studying seems too hard for these people. Don't ask us to study. Just give us the milk over and over again. They have the basics of the faith in their hand. They know they're saved. It's enough. We've got things to do, places to go, people to see. Why should we have to spend time with Jesus in our Bibles like Borden did? The ignorant believer needs to realize that our lack of understanding of Christ and his ways makes us nearly useless for any purpose to Christ and his kingdom. The scriptures are filled with riches untold that fit us for kingdom service, the person who gives himself to these things is prepared to serve Jesus and his people. How much more a servant could he be or she be? The one who dedicates themselves to understanding the riches that they've been given, those are the ones that look a lot like Jesus. Now let's go very quickly to the last section, verses 12 through 17. And this is the believer's aspiration. If the first uh, set of verses tell us about Christ's greatness and the second set of verses tell us about Peter's ignorance, these verses are encouraging to us because they tell us what our aspiration ought to be, what we ought to be aiming at. Jesus says to them, after he had washed their feet, he puts on his outer garment and he resumes his place. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? I don't want you to be ignorant, I want you to understand And he says, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then I, your teacher and Lord, if I'm the great one, if you understand that I'm the great one, if you understand that I'm the one that you're following, if I got down on my knees and washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet as well. I've given you an example. You should do just as I have done. He says, truly I say to you, A servant is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus earnestly desired for his disciples to learn the lesson of servanthood. After completing his object lesson, he quietly explained. He said, look, I'm the greatest among you. I'm your teacher. I'm your Lord. If I, then your teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. What's he saying? He's saying that it's the Christian's obligation to follow Christ's example into servanthood. Who's the greatest? And the answer is plain. It's God's servant son, Jesus. Jesus made a promise to us that if we will take it as our business, if we develop an attitude of heart that says, my existence is here to serve others and not myself, if our attitude of heart becomes that we will live our lives according to the pattern of Jesus, if we really believe this, if we're really gripped by this, if it comes to live in us, if we have that understanding, then our behavior will change. Don't mistake what he's saying here. He's not saying that we, that we get this by doing it. He's saying that first we have to become it. It isn't a question of doing. It's a question of becoming. And what we do comes out of what we have become The man or the woman who truly hears Christ's call to follow him into servanthood should plead with the Lord to make his desire grow to maturity, this desire for servanthood in his heart. Christ isn't ordering us to do. He's pleading with us to become. Once we believe this, doing becomes second nature. So, who's the greatest in your world? Jesus says that the greatest is the one who gives away his greatness in service to Christ and others. He said that, he did that, what he did at the table that we're about to, what he did represented in the table that we're about to participate in reminds us vividly that Jesus gave himself in service for us. Considering what he did, how much more a servant could he be? And how much more a servant can you and I be if we follow his example? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the servant par excellence, that you gave everything away to save us, that you cared so much for us, That you went to a cross you didn't deserve so that we could have a salvation that we don't merit. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your kindness. Help us to grow up to look like you. We'll thank you. In Jesus' name. God's people said, Amen. Amen.